we've done a number of things. It's interesting when you get old to look back and see how God moves you along through different experiences to where he wants you to go. And so it's been kind of exciting for us to see God move us because the last thing I thought I would do is what I'm doing. I'm from a very, very conservative background, and in our background, you don't do this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, warfare is just um, not an issue that, that you deal with. It's I don't know how I missed it, but it just was not in my background at all until I was a counselor at one of the large missions, and one of our missionaries was definitely having some real problems in that area, and it blew me away. I didn't know what to do, and I felt very badly because I didn't know how to help her. And she ended up in a mental hospital, and she shouldn't have been there. She was hearing voices and that kind of thing. And and um, God has marvelously done a work in her life, and I just talked to her last a week. And, uh, in fact, um, we're writing a book right now. Moody Press asked me three years ago to write a book, and I told them no, that I wasn't a writer, and warfare books are a dime a dozen, and who want another one out there? And I went down to uh, work with Wycliffe down in Guatemala, in fact, uh, wherever you go, remind you somewhere we went to Israel, it looked like Los Angeles and uh, Guatemala. You know what it looks like? Right here. This looks just like Guatemala. And you've been down there, Bernie, haven't you? The um, Lake Atlan is where I bought this, this um, Guatemalan um, tourist shirt. And uh, this has uh, Guatemalan weaving on it. And Lake Atlan is the most beautiful lake in the world. And it has like mountains over here coming right out of the lake with smoke coming out of the mountains, active volcanoes coming right out of the mountains. But this looks just like Guatemala. I thought, why does this look so familiar? I've never been here before. But it's amazing how different parts of the world just look like other parts of the world. But when I came back from, from Guatemala, two other publishers asked if I would write a book. And I'm a little slow in getting God's message, but I figured maybe that's what God wanted. And so um, since I'm not a writer, we, uh, I went back to Moody Press and I said, well, you guys asked first and I really feel that's what we ought to do. And so I have a ghostwriter for a spiritual warfare book. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> so um, this missionary is in it and so I wanted her to know and, and I said, uh, before it comes out, I, I'll, I, I uh, want you to look at it and, and be sure that you feel comfortable with what's said. She said, Jim, I'm so thankful because it's amazing what God has done. It really is. For someone who, who in Bible school taught the students that this could not happen, I prepared students for counseling and said the one thing you'll never counsel is a Christian uh, under the influence of demonic forces. And what a lie that was. And uh, we look back at people we didn't help, and all of a sudden it all clicks and starts making sense. It was a dimension. It had a spiritual dimension, and we dealt with the problem if it wasn't spiritual. And once we saw that and began to deal with that, why the Lord has really done a work. And so God has opened up opportunities uh, for us to minister to literally, uh, we figured I think in the last five years, close to 300,000 people face to face. It's unbelievable. I mean, we're just, we just can't believe it. It's just, God just opens the doors. And this was one of them and really thankful for it. It's very hard to jump into a warfare series um, not knowing where you're coming from and whether you're, if you were like me, I would be sitting there very cautious <laughs> about what's he going to say and all this kind of stuff. But it was interesting, just two weeks ago, I got a telephone call from Canada from, um, what was the Indian? What, what, what was the, I don't want to say the wrong Indian. Yes, 
That's what it was. Uh, <clears throat> this fellow had uh, had gone for the brethren. The brethren have uh, ministries on different reserves there, and there are five brethren groups that had me come to a camp, and we um, trained the missionaries, and then they left, and then the Indians came because there wasn't enough room at the camp for both. And this fellow happened to be there. And he just called a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was interesting. I was coming up here and get this call from this Indian. He's scared to death. He couldn't hardly talk. And his voice, you know, like someone's running, running. It's out of breath. He was so scared, he was out of breath. And he said, Mr. Lohan, help us. God help us. And I said, well, what happened? What happened? He said, well, uh, there was a 16-year-old girl that was uh, ritually murdered on our, res on our re reserve here. And there, I think there was like 300 people or 350 people in this village, uh, in this reserve in Canada. And uh, as soon as she was murdered, a stray dog came into the, the reservation. And they were very frightened. Well, a girl decided she would take a picture of the dog. So she took her camera, and as she went to take a picture of the dog, at dusk, the dog turned into a girl. And she clicked the picture. Well, the next, I mean, I'm telling you what I was told over the phone. Um, the next day, the girl is violently ill. And the the the... The Indians surrounded the dog, and as they approached the dog, it disappeared. And um, so they were calling me, what do we do? And they want to kill the dog. And I said, well, there's a number of things. When I uh, was, I've been on the board of Berean Mission, and some of you who have, know of Berean uh, Mission, I've been on the board and trained their missionary candidates for 14 years. It's just a part-time thing for them. And uh, their director was on Grenada. And he was up on a bluff, and they had a, a ring of whatever particular cult group it was down at the ocean, and he was up above, and the fellow was floating a girl around. I mean, when he told me, this was before I believed in warfare, and I had a real hard time believing, except I knew the fellow, and thought, why would the director of mission lie? And this girl was floating around in the circle of these people. She was being levitated, and she was going around. So he took pictures. He thought this would be really good, uh, you know, fundraiser and all of this when you go home. You know the kind of things we're dealing with in Grenada. So he took these these slides, and when he the slides were developed, there was the ring of people, and there was the fellow who shaman or whatever it was in the middle, but there was nobody floating. So I said, uh, if you develop the picture, if that was if that dog is truly a spirit, then everything is going to be there but the dog. But I said, now let's say that this dog somehow has got, when this girl was killed, since obviously you can't kill spirits, that spirit was freed. Now if somehow that spirit would be a, attached to the dog and you kill the dog, what's going to happen in your village to that spirit? And I said, this is a wonderful opportunity to witness. Because 1 Thessalonians uh, three three says, the Lord is faithful who will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And I said, those who know Christ have God's protection. But what about those who don't know Christ? Are they just freeing the spirit, if there is a spirit connected with a dog, I'm just saying if, they're in trouble. And they need to know Christ, the protector. And I would use this as an opportunity to share Christ with these people on how they need to know him, to save them from their sins and to protect them from the evil one as the scripture says he'll do. So um, he said, well, I really appreciate everything you told me, and I'm going to tell the people they better trust the Lord or they're in trouble if they kill that dog. And uh, so I don't know what happened. I don't know what took place. I've been uh, working with many different Indian groups. It's been amazing, um, actually, working with them, the Indians, not so much with the missionaries, but a lot of the Indians themselves, the Apaches, the Navajo, the Ojibwe, the Crete, the... Um, 
the Sioux, and um, with the um, and that's in this country and then Indians in other parts of the world. But uh, the Sioux Indians, I've spent a lot of time there uh, dealing with them and um, helping them. They've, the Sioux are into a lot of of, of spirit stuff, and um, the um, they sent me the videos from up here. You know those the videos that they did on what sixty minutes or NPR or something of the Indians here, the speak to the raven or pray to the raven or whatever. Well, I don't have a television in our home. Um, we just felt it wasn't a very good influence on our children, so we got rid of it 24 years ago. And so our little four-year-old, who's now 27, youth pastor, can't even remember having a TV in the house. And I was the last one to stop. Our kids stopped watching it. And that's kind of convicting to the pastor. You know, when your kids won't watch it, they said, Dad, they're swearing on there. I was watching the good stuff, Lucy and, you know, all the good stuff. But anyway, we just, no one was watching it but me, so we thought, well, you better get rid of this thing. Uh, the kids, it's not putting the right kind of character. And the thing I want to share with you that's been so thrilling for us is we have four children, and all four of them trusted Christ as their Savior. All four of them, uh, well, three of them are married, one's still single. Um, they married uh, dedicated uh, Christians. Three of our children are in full-time Christian ministry, and the fourth one is serving the Lord uh, as youth pastor in their church, but he works on the side uh, as a second, uh, second job. And we have six grandchildren of all trusted Christ, and some of them are looking to be missionaries. So it's been thrilling for us to see that in the process of pastoring and teaching in Bible colleges and being involved with missions, that our kids were not turned off to the Lord Jesus Christ and serving him. And let me tell you, I think one of the things that that uh, kept our kids from turning off. We've, we've had to pray food in. Have you ever had no food to eat? Have you ever needed clothes for your kids and you didn't have clothes? Have you been there? And had to pray and our kids have seen. We kept a record of how God met our needs. And a very, we have a prayer journal. Our kids saw God moving and supplying in unique ways food and clothing as we prayed and God did this and we kept a record of these things. But I think the key is that we never complain about the leadership, or complained about the organizations that we were involved in, in front of the children. We never ran it down. They never ever heard that. And sometimes that's hard, isn't it? You know, you just you can't always agree with everything that takes place, and yet how do you disagree? And and you know, it's better to pray sometimes than and to share. And I think a lot of Christian kids have been turned off by listening to what their folks and how they complain about the Christian ministry. And I'd really encourage you not to do that in front of your children. You know, if you need to talk about it, talk about it in front of each other, but don't say it in front of the kids. Um, the, um, I have to share this with you. I didn't know when to share it, but I'll share it now. The last time I was with the Sioux Indians, we had an opportunity to spend time with the most powerful medicine man of the Sioux Nation. He travels with the New Age and speaks all over the world. He's very powerful. His, his father was the most powerful medicine man. And I was sharing that when his father died, uh, they had to carry his body an, uh, a mile and a half from the road out to the little house where he lived. And, and he had a sweat lodge out there. And they buried him out there. And the whole reservation was there. And, and this mission reservation is a rather large reservation. If you drive to see the presidents, you know, carved in the stones in South Dakota, you'll drive through this reservation. It's very large. And a lot, a lot of Sioux Indians are there. They have a college there and everything, an Indian college. And so the whole, this whole tribal group right there went to the funeral and followed the coffin out. And as they carried the coffin from the highway out, 
there were 55 eagles that circled the coffin the whole mile and a half. And everybody saw it, and they said, look how powerful this medicine man was. Well, his spirits came to his son. I asked the son if he had them. And he said, oh, yes, I've got my father's spirits besides my own. And he's very, very powerful, but he's, a, he's a, afraid of the power. He doesn't want it. And he wants his son, who is a believer, to be the medicine man. So he doesn't have to be. And he said, Dad, I don't want to be uh, the medicine man. But as I was uh, going to speak to this group again, because I spoke to them before, the Bible opened up and just flopped open. And I just looked in. I was sitting there to speak, and it just opened up, and I flopped down, and I looked, and it was Acts 15, 20. Well, this offended the medicine man's two sons who are in the church. One of them I don't think is a Christian, and his daughter. His daughter has really unbelievable powers. If she was in this room, you could sense evil from where she's sitting. And I don't pick that up very well, but the first time I spoke, I didn't know, but there was someone sitting over here that I was getting very evil feelings from. So afterwards, I asked the missionary, I said, who was that girl over here? I said, this is something really awesome, evil about this girl. And they said, oh, she is the granddaughter of the most powerful medicine man. And uh, I believe that those spirits went to this girl. She was levitating objects at three years of age. We have it on video, not her doing it, but her mother, who is a strong believer, who is married to the, this medicine man that we talked to, who's now medicine man, but they're divorced. She raised these kids, and she, she has, on. we have her on video, sharing the things that her daughter did as a little girl, the power she had, just unbelievable, strange powers for a little child to have. Well, the Bible opened up, and uh, as you know, in dealing with, with, with Indians, that it, down there when I speak to them, they're, they're, they think I'm going to reject them. And uh, we try to tell them the difference between Indian culture and Indian spirits. And that's a real difference, that I'm not against Indian culture, but I am against worshiping Indian spirits and appeasing the spirits. I do so much of that appeasing and all of that kind of stuff. And as I opened the Bible, uh, this really blew the Sioux Indians away, this verse, because they're violating Acts and what they do. And Acts 15.20, I just saw it, and I got up and I read it, and I thought, God, this is my opening. But that we write unto them that they abstain from the pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from things from blood. And see, the Sioux Indians, when they do their, some of their powerful things, they take a dog and they take a rope, a 10-foot rope, and a man gets over here with one end of the rope, and then they put it around the dog's neck, and another man has the other end of the rope, and they slowly strangle the dog to death, and then they skin it, and they make a special soup out of it, and all in part in contacting spirits and so on. And so when I said this, they were offended. Because they all knew that they did this. And God says what? Don't. <laughs> you know, don't. And uh, in fact, one, uh, one of the boys got really, really upset with me because we looked at this and, and shared this. But we have to separate, and that's really hard, isn't it? Culture from spirits. What is, what is fine and what is acceptable before the Lord and what is not? What do we stand against? What do we help them to stand against? What do we help them to see is not right before the Lord? I want you to turn to Ephesians 6. You know this, um, the warfare thing. We're going to take this up on Friday, the armor. But I just want to set this whole thing in, in, in perspective. Ephesians is a, a unique book. 
And if you don't understand warfare, you can't understand Ephesians because that's what it's all about. The, uh, it's interesting for such a small book, the word power is found more in Ephesians than any other book except Romans. But of course, Ephesians is only six chapters and Romans is 16. And the word in Christ is 40 times in six chapters. Why is that emphasis? Well, do we know the teachings of Artemis? Do we know what the people were believing that Paul was helping them to get from their religion of Artemisism into Christianity and to see the difference and to take a stand against and not bring it over and, and, and bring over their, their, their false teaching with the true teaching. But in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, uh, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power is mine. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but, and then he lists these demonic powers. And then he says in verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, doing all to stand, and to withstand the evil day. Um, what is interesting here is a change of pronouns in the English and in the Greek. He says in chapter uh, 11, Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand. In verse 13, he says, Take unto the armor of God that you may be able to stand. But what's he saying in verse 12? For we all wrestle demonic spirits. So the issue is not, are you wrestling? The issue is, are you winning or are you losing? Warfare is a biblical reality. Do I like it? No. If you would get in on the tragic situations we get on, and we, we, we deal with a lot of full-time Christian workers, missionaries, we have missionaries that fly in from all over the world for counseling. Most of the people I see fly in from other states. Our counseling is totally free. We do not believe that it's right to make money off of the hurting Christians and that we're supported like you are by people who, who just want to help us to be able to help others who are hurting and come alongside of them during a very difficult time. So we're all in a spiritual battle. I think if you went to Yugoslavia, and I was with CEF for seven years, over all their missionaries, we worked in 120 countries of the world. One of our, my good friends, his job is to reach all the children of Yugoslavia and to, to, to motivate the, to, to the people. And if you went to Yugoslavia today and all you know, the battles that are going on between the Serbs and the, all these people, and you ask the people there, what do you think of the battle here? You know what they're going to tell you? We don't like it. But it still is. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that we like the spiritual battle. There is one going on. And God has given us everything that we need to walk in victory if we apply the victory. So I want to um, start tonight as, as uh, looking in the scriptures in spiritual warfare by going to the book of Matthew. In uh, Matthew 16, we, uh, we receive at our counseling center somewhere around 5,000 calls or more a year from people that are hurting. 
And so I go to work at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I start calling from the East Coast because it's an hour earlier there, and I call across the United States until 8 o'clock trying to do these callbacks. And then between my counselees, because I see someone only, only for one week, and I see them three hours a day for 15 hours. And we see people coming to freedom from about everything you think of within that time and staying free. Um, those who get my prayer letter, uh, we have testimonies of people after they've walked in victory for a year. They'll write, that we, they'll write their testimonies and send them in, and they go in our, in our prayer letter, and, and they go out. And so our prayer letter is just loaded with testimonies of people of different struggles that they've had in their life, different bondages they've had. They have not been free. They've not had inner peace. They don't know what it is to experience the fruit of the Spirit in, in, in their life and are coming to that uh, as the enemy's grip on their life is broken. And um, Matthew 16 is where we start with the counselees. You have to start somewhere. The spiritual battle and spiritual warfare is won and lost up here. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the ministry, and I just forgot the name of it. His mansion, and warfare issues, dealt with some of the most difficult cases they had. You know, girls that have had Dallas, one in Chicago, and then I'm going to kick one off in, um, out of uh, every three kids that are there, and they won't take any more than that. Just an excellent ministry of what they do there. And it clicked for them. Satan can put... That's why you and I are never to be controlled by our thoughts. Art to number the children of Israel. We had to draft an army. If we started losing pretty badly, and we had to draft an army, how many men are you the general? It doesn't make sense. We need to, you need to take a sense. Makes sense, doesn't it? Does it make sense? <laughs> when he let that thought become part of his thinking, he acted on it. God brought great judgment in his life. We're going to see during this week that Satan put thoughts in Jesus' mind without sin because it never became a part of what? His thinking. And people have got to realize there are three sources of thoughts. One of the most phenomenal missionaries that we had on our mission that was on loan. Why in the world are you going to resign? She said, Jim, I'm having terrible problems. And I can't tell anybody. And I'll say something like, well, God will meet all your, your, your needs. Then I get this thought. You know, God loves you. And then she gets this thought. God doesn't love you. And she's saying, how can I be a missionary if I don't believe? She said, I even took a course from Fred Dickinson at Moody, and it didn't even dawn on me. She said, so that's what was going on. That was phenomenal. God so protected her and joy. After their first four years in Africa, they came home on furlough, went back to Gabon, and they moved them to another section of Gabon. Well, this is what they, in Africa, when someone wants to do something special for you, they cook you a meal and bring it to you. It's a very special way of showing they care. And there was a, one of the deaconesses in the church was cooking meals and taking it to Becky and Joy. But what they didn't know, that this particular lady was not a believer. She did not like these girls, and she was putting poison in their food. And these girls were eating poison food, and nothing happened to them. So she upped the poison, and nothing happened to them. They didn't find this out to, to two years after they moved away, and this lady got converted, and she couldn't believe that she couldn't kill them. And here was a missionary that was going to quit, and here God was protecting them. 
And she said, I thought of the scripture that says they shall even drink poison and God will protect us. We didn't know God was protecting us. We wouldn't have eaten poison if we knew it was poison, but you couldn't taste it. We did not know that she was poisoning us. Another situation she had, and uh, she was my interpreter when I spoke to 10 Western African countries there. All the leaders came, and I did a warfare series for the African leaders from 10 countries. And we did it in, in uh, Ghana, and then I went into Nigeria. And she did the French interpreting for me and the counseling of the missionaries and these leaders. These are leaders over countries who are having tremendous struggles with the enemy. And she was translating from French to English for me. And uh, she said, you guess what just happened three weeks ago, Jim? And this was just right after Easter a few years ago. She said that a lady came to our church, and it was Christian Missionary Alliance, and it's an African pastor, and they only took members twice a year. And they took them at Christmas and Easter. That was the policy of the church. And they baptized, and they could take communion. And they only did communion twice a year, Christmas and Easter. And so this lady showed up at Christmas time, but she was from an area, and they didn't know her. And as they quizzed her, she gave all the right answers, you know, to being saved and all that. But the pastor had a, a reservation in his heart that something wasn't right. And so he, um, he said, no, she can't join church. Well, she showed up again before Easter and went through the same thing again, and he had reservations. Well, the elders said, you can't just, unless you can show us from the word why she can't be a member, you've got to take her as a member. And he said, I don't know, but there's something not right. Well, they took her as a member, and they baptized her, and she took communion. She immediately got sick. She went next door to the pastor's house, and this happened just two weeks before I got to Africa. Becky and Joy went in there with the pastor, and this lady fell on the floor. And the pastor said, you're holding something from me. Tell me what it is. She wouldn't tell him, and she died on the kitchen floor. Well, they came to get her from that village, and it took a while to get her. And when they came to get her, they said, do you know who she was? And they said, no. They said, well, she's the most powerful sorceress in our area. And she said, before I die, I want to taste the Christian's power. And God struck her dead. And let me tell you, for a long time in that area of Africa, when people took communion, they searched their hearts. You know, God is powerful. I mean, it's amazing the things that God does. But we have to realize. And so when we have people come to us, some people hear voices. But that's, that's, that's not a lot. That would be a very, a very small group of people hearing voices. But a lot of people have intruding thoughts. Just intruding thoughts that come into their mind that just get them. So the first question we ask somebody are, you know, how do I tell where these thoughts are coming from? If I'm to deal with them, how do I know? I say, number one, are these thoughts from God? And they go, oh, no, not the thoughts I'm thinking. You know, I know these aren't from God. But how do I know if they're my thoughts or enemy thoughts? And that's, um, that's really kind of easy. I mean, a lot easier than what you would think. And this is a rule of thumb. So if someone comes to you, you can help them think. You know, is this something, is my thinking or is this something that's coming into my mind from the enemy? And this is warfare. I mean, he has access to put thoughts in my mind. They, um, what we ask them is, is, is this. I said, let me, let me explain this to you. Let's say that we're going out for lunch. And so we've got what we call the, you know, the fast food row. And I say, you know, you say, well, what about McDonald's? And I say, McDonald's? I don't like Big Macs. Okay, what about Hardee's? Well, I don't like their shakes. You know, and what about Wendy's? Well, their fries are terrible. And, you know, and you go down all these joints, you know. But the person that's having intruding thoughts, guess what they're thinking all the time? 
McDonald's, 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 because it's not their thoughts. It's like hearing someone, like a radio playing outside quite loud, and we hear it, and we can't turn it off. Because it's not coming from me, it's coming from that radio. It's a voice that's not coming from me. I can turn my mind and put it on what I want to. Didn't you tonight? Did you take peas? You know, or did you sit down and, and you don't like peas? And a voice said, eat your peas. Sound like your mother. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you're, if you're sitting there, you're hearing peas, peas. I don't like peas. Peas, peas, peas. <clears throat> We're making it sound kind of simple, but really, it's, it's a lot simpler than what you have any idea. You know, and this is not me. Because I can't, I don't want to think like this. And it keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back. And I have to assume this is not me. And I need to deal with that thought. And so, otherwise, if I don't deal with that thought, pretty soon, that thought can really affect me. And the enemy can be working in that dining hall. It's a perfect place to work. Let me tell you how he works. Uh, you're sitting there at a table, and someone's walking over with their tray, and they see you, and they walk over here. And sit down. And what did you just think? They don't like me, they never did. That's the Canadian branch anyway. <laughs> or whatever, you know? It's amazing, those thoughts can come. Is that of God? Those can be, those can be devastating thoughts after a while. As you begin to think, they didn't smile, we went at the door, you know, and obviously they're thinking things, and all of a sudden I'm getting all the subjective stuff in my mind, and it's not true. Think on those things that are what? True. It's not true. I'm having thoughts that aren't true. And I'm being starting to be wiped out of my mind with thoughts that aren't so. And I begin to receive these thoughts that they are true. And it's a real battle that goes on. So I, I just want to set the stage for the battle that is going on. And we want to look at some of, of God's, uh, some neat things about the battle. And I want you to turn to Luke 16. Wrong chapter. Um, Luke 22. This is the last days in the life of Christ, and there's all kinds of enemy activity in this chapter. A lot of demonic stuff going on. Well, maybe I'll give you some basics. I'm jumping ahead here, and I'm assuming some things that maybe we ought not assume. Um, do you know Satan's goal for your life? I love sharing this. I, I've trained a lot of navigators from crusades. I was saved through navigators, and I've had opportunity of training navigate, navigators from crusade staff at some of the universities. And if you wanted to see some demonic stuff going on, leave your villages and go to the university. If you want to see them calling spirits and all the stuff that's going on, there's some of the weirdest things going on in some of these universities. It's unbelievable, the kids that are into, you know, traveling out of their bodies and just doing all kinds of weird stuff in these universities. And so I say, you know, that I, I, I love to do it to crusade people. I say, you know, that Satan has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> these kids go, I think I'll listen to that old man. You know, they take out their pen and go look at. But Satan has a threefold plan for your life, John 10.10. 10. 
Jesus said, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Every attack of the enemy is to fulfill one of these three things, or as many as possible. But Jesus said that I've come that you might have life and you have it more abundantly. I believe that spirits are only spirits of influence. I believe the Holy Spirit is only a spirit of influence. I don't think you walk down the street and get whomped by the Holy Spirit. I don't think you're going to walk down the street and get whomped by a wicked spirit. They're spirits of influence. And if I yield myself to whoever influence is influencing me, then that's going to influence my life. If the enemy is trying to influence me, and I yield to that influence, then the enemy will have control in my life as much as possible. I was talking to the Apaches, and the Apaches are so stoic. You know, the Sioux Indians, they, they, they smile, and they're right with you in warfare, but the Apaches just, they just sit there. And so I, I, about the second night in the church, I said, now I want you guys to do what I'm going to tell you to do. I want you to turn around, and I want you to slug the people sitting behind you. They just looked at me. I said, well, I guess you didn't hear me. I want you to turn around and I want you to slug the people sitting behind you. The Sioux Indians said, good, my mother-in-law's behind me. <laughs> they were into this, you know, the Apaches. And um, then I said, I wouldn't go to a church like this. this a terrible church. Everybody here had violent thoughts. See, what did I do? I put thoughts in their mind and then I accused them for having those thoughts. That's what the enemy does. I counsel lots of teenagers. Lots of them. I spoke to 3,000 teenage boys. I think your boys were in there a couple years ago. Or it was 4,000 boys. Teenage boys. The whole auditorium is full of boys. On warfare issues. This is the only time it ever happened. When I got through speaking, these young people gave me a standing ovation and I cried. 4,000 boys. I gave them hope that there was victory over lust. There is victory in Christ. The enemy wants to wipe you out. You know, I, th I like what our president of the mission said. If Satan can't get the missionaries, he'll go after their kids. And I can't tell you the number of missionaries' kids that I've counseled that are all messed up, unbelievably messed up, into things you cannot believe, evils, Great evils. Satan is just bound those kids. Okay, the thief comes to do three things. Spirits, only spirits of influence. They want me to get my focus off of Christ. What does it say in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Look unto who? Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. Satan wants me to look on what? People, circumstances, my problems. He wants my focus off of Christ. Once they're off of Christ, I've had it. I'm to look unto Jesus. And Satan doesn't want me to look there. There's three things he wants to do to steal. What can Satan steal from you? If someone went through our rooms, what would they steal? I mean, some of you probably been here long enough to change your underwear. Are you concerned that someone's going to steal your dirty underwear? If someone around here is stealing dirty underwear, we all better be concerned. <laughs> no, that's not what a thief steals. What does he steal? He steals something of value. What do you have of value that the enemy wants to steal from you? that your life will have eternal significance. I think that's the most important thing. Your life will not count for eternity. You're saved so as by fire. How many people do you know who used to be with a mission, that aren't with a mission anymore, 
and you wonder if they're even walking with the Lord. He's fallen away. The enemy's just robbed them. Or he robs you of your peace and your joy and love. He's robbing you of the fruit of the Spirit. Satan is the thief. And he's going to steal of that from you which has value. Realize this is what he's working. The second thing he's going to work is he's to kill. Satan cannot kill you without permission. And so many of the teenagers and Christian workers that we see have given serious thought to guess what? Suicide. I just can't go on. Major attack of the enemy. My situation is hopeless. If it's hopeless, it's only one or two things. Give myself over to it or end it all. Most every Christian worker that has a sexual addiction, and we get lots of them, because Bible school didn't do it, seminary didn't do it, and the mission field didn't do it. They either, it's hopeless, and there's no way out, and I might as well just go into that lifestyle, or end it all. I can't stand living like this. And many of the testimonies you've read in my prayer letters will start out with these Christian workers sharing how they, one, was sitting in a garage with a syringe trying to inject poison in his veins. But because the garage lights were dim, he didn't realize that he hit a vein. His dad is a leader in a major denomination. He tried again to, to get blood, and he didn't get it. He walked out of the garage. He was carrying the syringe. I'll read his testimony of what happened to his children when he was all in bondage that there was tendrils of blood in the syringe, and he realized he really did, and the voices said, you can't do anything right. You can't even kill yourself. And he went in and he trashed the syringe, gave it to his wife, called me on the phone, he's crying, he said, Mr. Logan, can you see me? I've heard you speak, and I know that this, I'm in bondage, and I can't live like this. I can't do this to my wife. I can't do it to my kids. I can't go on like this. Can you see me? And I said, yes, in three months. Afraid I won't make it three months. He went to a major Christian clinic that you all know of, spent $22,000 for 30 days. When he left there, they said he was a hopeless sex addict, that he would be uh, needing to go to this 12-step program at least twice a week the rest of his life. He said to them, I'm going to go down to the, the International Center and see Mr. Logan. They said, yeah, he'll cast demons out of you, and they laughed at him. He came down, spent a week, walked away a free man, waited three months, went back to his counselors at this famous clinic, that are all over, and he said, look at me, I'm a different person. One of the guys said, you can't stay free of this, it's impossible, you'll be back in it in less than a year. The other counselor said, can I go down and be your prayer partner with Jim Logan? So he came down as a prayer partner, and now he supports me. And this fellow's been free now for two and a half years of cross-dressing, which even the Christian world says there's no hope for a cross-dresser. And I can't tell you how many teenage boys are into cross-dressing. I've been amazed. It's rampant. It's rampant. Christian teenage boy. It's tragic. If the phone calls, what we're getting, and the kids that we're dealing with, that are coming in, the enemy is just doing a, it's wiping out our country with, with, with the sexual stuff. And with this new virtual reality that these kids put on, where you see it and you're there, and they're programming pornography into that, so it's not just looking at a pornography book. It's not looking at a pornography movie, but you put this on and you're actually involved in it in virtual reality. You've seen those things that the kids put on? It's 3D, music, the whole thing. You wear this thing. They're going to do it. 
You look, you look at magazines, you can see it. You put these things on and, and, and they're into it. It's like that 3D and they can push a button, maybe a surfboard or skiing. And they're on a screen. And as they ski, they ski right leaned on this thing, they miss the trees. And some kids would wipe out, then they had to get off, and another kid get on it. The screen's all around them. That's virtual reality. It's 3D TV stuff. And the last is to destroy. Satan loves to try to destroy relationships wherever I've been, anywhere in the world. And I'm not picking any mission. Our mission was the same. Any mission I've been involved with. I'm, we've got to see what he does. We think someone under demonic influence has got some guy who's going to run around here ripping his shirt off and dragging chains. And we can stand against him. Now, go to Luke. The only time in the New Testament. Testament, and I think that, that he was so sick, uh, let's get rid of him. You get down to chapter, uh, verse to have you, that he may sift you as sweet. Sebastian, and the answer that the Lord gave, let's go to the book of Job, chapter 1. In Job, chapter 1 and chapter 2, God gives us his Testimony of Job. Now, we can have a testimony service, and, and we all could stand up and say what good people we are and how wonderful we are, and that's fine. But the testimony that really counts is God's testimony of your life. That'll be accurate, won't it? What God says about a person is accurate. And three times, God gives us his testimony of Job. What kind of a man was he? Now let's start in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. The Lord said unto Satan, When comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord. He said, From going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down uh, from it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant with interact? Did you realize that God brought up Job, not Satan? I mean, I didn't. I've read this because I always read the Bible through at least once a year. But, you know, you can read it through and not get much. And if I don't look for something, I don't get very much at all. I've got to be looking for something in Scripture so I read it with understandings rather than, you know, I've done my duty to God and country. I've read the Bible through this year. And so he said, have you considered my servant Job? And then he said, there's none like him in the earth. He's perfect. He's upright. He fears God and he's choose evil. Four things. The first word is perfect, or tam. T-A-M in the Hebrew, it's complete, undefiled, morally clean. He said, I've checked his moral life, he's pure. It's excellent testimony for a man, isn't it? Pure man, God said. The second thing he said about this man, and that is that he was upright, that's yeshan in the Hebrew, and that means straight, just, and fair in all his business dealing. Job was probably the wealthiest man in the Bible, and God says he's an honest man. The third thing is Yer. He feared God. He had a reverential respect for God's reputation. Job was concerned about what he did, how it reflect on God. It was something like the song you guys sang. That was a beautiful song. I want to tell you, that was beautiful. And without, I don't know if you could hear them, you know, without a mic. We ought to make them do it again and put a mic there. I mean, it was really beautiful, and the harmony was really lovely. But the words of that song, that poem, was a beautiful poem. And... And Job was concerned. If I do this, what will people think of the God? It was not his reputation he was concerned about. It was God's reputation. When I was first, I was pastoring my first church. In fact, you're going to meet one of the first guys that ever got his life squared away 
And the first pastor to ever have, he's going to fly in Wednesday or drive in Wednesday. Really a character. His name is John Mahon. Lived in Anchorage for many years. And uh, John was in that little community where I pastored. Way out in nowhere. And I was so concerned. I used to tell my kids, if you do that, what will people think? I mean, after all, it was my first pastorate. I was pastoring a church in nowhere and concerned about what people were thinking. Now, if you tell your kids that, if they want to get even with you, they know exactly what to do. And that is to damage the family reputation. Does it really matter what people think? Or is it what God thinks? Isn't that what's important? We need to give our reputation to God. But let me tell you something. Don't give God anything that he can't take. Do you guys know Laterno? He spoke in our church. Dr. McGee was my pastor for a while when I was going to Biola. And uh, Dr. McGee had Mr. Laterno there. And he told about how he was putting IOUs in the offering and the ushers would go, they, they count the money and they go, oh no, another IOU from Laterno. You know, we'd, we'd rather have money than IOUs, you know. And you know, he ended up, he gave 90% of his income to God and lived on 10%, if you know the story of R.J. Laterno. And so he gave his business to God and he became a multimillionaire and he sold his business and they gave him, what, $2 million? He wouldn't go back into business or something. He threw in a bonus to stay out of business for a while. So anyway, a guy in our church got into this, and he thought, this is marvelous. So he came to see Dr. McGee a few months later, and he said, you remember you had Laterno here? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, Laterno gave God his business, and he made him a multimillionaire. And McGee said, that's right. And he said, you know what? I'm mad. He said, what are you mad about? He said, I gave God my business, and he took it. <laughs> I want to tell you, don't give God your, your reputation unless God can test you with your reputation. Don't ever give God something that he can't take. You know what I'm saying? You dedicate your children to the Lord, he may take them home before you expect it. But does he have a right? Well, children are the heritage of the Lord. He opened and closes the womb. They're his children. And God has been very fortunate. We've had our children for a number of years. We have a daughter that's going to be 40 pretty soon. And so we've been very fortunate to have one girl for 40 years, another one for 36 years. Another one for 30-some and another uh, son for 27 years. We've been very fortunate. And there are others that have had children for 27 days. You know, they didn't have them that long. And they belong to the Lord and, and, and God can do what he wants to if we really believe he's sovereign and we believe that you know, we've given everything to him. So Job was concerned about God's reputation. He lived in the fear of the Lord. And the last one, he eschewed evil. And that's C-U-W-R in the Hebrew. And I always say it wrong, so I'll just spell it. And he avoided evil at all costs. He had a hatred of evil. So let's go over this man's life. Here is a man who was morally pure. Here is a man who was honest in all his business dealings. Here is a man who lived and he was concerned about what, how, what his actions would reflect on the God that he represented. And here's a man who had a hatred of evil. Do you see any problems with a man like that? Do you? I don't. And obviously, he's not going to have any demonic problems. Right? Wrong. We better get that out of our mind. 
that if someone's under attack of the enemy, there's something wrong with them. Now let's go on. Satan answered and said to the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? There we have an accusation. And of course Satan is what? The accuser. He said, of course he, he follows you. Why not? Job has a problem, you know, God. Job has a temporal value problem. Job builds his life around things. And if you don't believe me, touches things. You don't need to ask a man what his commitment is and what his walk is with the Lord. Watch him when he goes to the fires. And that will reveal what he really believes about God, his sovereignty, and all that when he goes to the fires. Check his life. I taught a grad-level division in counseling in Bible college, and I flunked all the students on a test. Gave them all an F. And the boxes were way down the hallway from my office. So I watched them. They got their mail after chapel, and I watched the guy open his box. Straight-A student, he pulls out this test and had a big F on it. I put a big, they wouldn't miss it, you know, big F corner in red. Saw this F. He crunched the paper up, and he threw it on the floor. And everybody backed up, you know, and he opened it up, looked again, and he, I don't think he ever got an F in his life. Anyway, he crunched it, threw it on the floor. Well, I had various reactions of students getting Fs. Well, after lunch was this class, well, after lunch, these guys were all sitting in there, and girls, and they're going, we don't get this. We checked these answers, and our answers are right, and you gave us an F. I said, you know what? I wanted to see if you would trade character for a grade. You see, our college was trying to build Christian character. That was the emphasis of Calvary Bible College. Answer. Could a Christian school turn out students with character? Godly character. That was our goal. Could we do that? You know. So, I made my point. <laughs> and that's what he's saying about Job. You touch his stuff, you'll see what he's like. Just touch his stuff. Remember the time I got a scratch, the first scratch on the new car that I bought on time because it was up God, obviously. You know, the credit went through and all that stuff. <laughs> you know what I found out about a new car when you buy it on time? The smell goes before the payments. But verse 10 is the real key here that we want to see. Have not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and all that he hath in every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But he said, you, you, let, me, you let me touch his stuff, he'll curse you. And God said, you can touch his stuff, but you can't touch him. Did Job curse God? No, he fell down, and what did he do? He worshipped. He lost everything. Do you read Christian biographies? You better. He that walks with wise men are wise. 
Remember I told you we got rid of the TV years ago? Well, we knew we had to get something in its place. So we bought Christian biographies, and we got about six or 700 of them now. And so our kids, when they, I was reading my son as a preschooler, The Life of Hudson Taylor, The Life of John Mueller, those were his heroes, or his friends' heroes, was Big Bird and Bert and Ernie and stuff like that. And I wanted my kids to know godly men and women whose lives changed the course of the world. And so I remember my favorite. God has been so gracious to me in letting me meet some of the descendants of some of my very favorite godly people. And I guess my very, very favorites, and it's really hard because there's so many wonderful ones, are the Gulf Force of China, Roslyn and Jonathan Goforth. And uh, when they went to China, from they were Canadian missionaries, the Canadian Presbyterian Church, and they went to China on a clipper ship. They took everything they had. They were newlyweds. And while they were passing out tracts, learning the Chinese language, they heard the Chinese fire gone. They came to their house. They were just a young couple. And everything they brought to China was going up in flames, and they lost everything. And Rosalind Goforth began to wring her hands. This is like chapter 2. And Jonathan Goforth reached over and says, Now, now, Rose, it's only things. But, you know, i got a good book here. And God brought, when I was pastoring in Tacoma, Washington, God brought Mary Goforth into my life, which is the first daughter that lived. And she, 60 years old, showed slides of her father who brought the last revival to China before the communists took over, showed slides where there'd be 1,000, 2,000 people down front getting saved as he was blind, preaching God's word in the pulpit. Snow white hair, long white beard, and just radiating the glory of God. God used this man in a marvelous way. And I shared that story about the go forth and how I knew I had a good book. And Mary said, do you realize that my mother lost everything but the clothes on her back five times in her lifetime? Did your kids know those kind of people? So it's so neat. I mean, other, I won't tell you other heroes, but God has brought their descendants in my life. He said, Jim, you like them? I'll let you meet one of their... He said, well, let me give you another one. In the Wisconsin seminar, Bill Ganther did one in Wisconsin or, or Twin Cities or something. Maybe it's Milwaukee. And there were 15,000 people at this very first seminar. And so a friend of mine was his assistant that time, and, and he said, Bill, do you know that Hudson Taylor's grandson's in the audience? And he said, no. And so um, Bill went out and... and peeked through the curtains before they started, and he said, see that guy over there? I think that's him. And so he says, check at the break. So at the break, he went in to see him, and he said, uh, how do you like seminar, and so on and so forth, and he had a badge, they knew he was an official guy there, and he was sharing, and he said, by the way, would you be Hudson Taylor's grandson? And he said, yes. So he went back, and he said, Bill, I want to ask you some questions. Have you ever seen Hudson Taylor's grandson? No. Have you ever seen a picture of Hudson Taylor's grandson? No. How could you pick him out of 15,000 people? He said it was easy. He had the glow of God on his countenance. Doesn't the scripture say that the godliness of a mother and father can be visited their children for four and five generations? Doesn't that what it says in Psalm 103? The righteous of a man goes down and affects their children, their children's children. Well, here's Job. Satan wants to attack him. Oh, I forgot. Remember, he said, if you touch his stuff, he'll curse God. Who told Job to curse God? His wife. Where did that thought come from? You know what you and I need to pray? That we may not be tools in the hand of Satan in someone else's life. Use your mouth what? 
for edifying, not for tearing down. In the tongue is what? The ability for life and death. Have you ever seen a scalpel? Have you ever seen an exacto knife? Anybody still awake? <laughs> an exacto knife. Well, that's what a scalpel looks like. You put a scalpel in the hand of a skillful surgeon, it's a marvelous tool. You put it in the hand of a madman, and it can do great damage because it's so sharp. And we need to dedicate our mouths to God. And we, every day I'll say, God, don't let me be a tool in the hand of Satan in someone else's life. There's enough trouble out there and there's enough heartache out there. Isn't that right? We've been around long enough that I don't need to be a part of it. And I don't want to be used of the enemy in anyone's life. Okay. Now let's go back. Why could not Satan attack Job? Because God had put a hedge of protection around him and his house and all that he has. I asked the Sioux Indians this question. I said, um, guys, I want to ask you, they were braves. I said, I want to ask you a question. I said, you know, I used to love to watch all these westerns. I was a real western nut. And, you know, I'd watch these Indians attacking the wagon trains. And see, that's where a lot of it was done was done by the Sioux as they went across Nebraska, you know, in that area, the, the Sioux Indians were the ones that were doing a lot of the attacking of the wagon trains and stuff. And I said, you see these the wagon trains in circle and the Indians are riding around and they're shooting their arrows like crazy and they, you've seen you know, the arrows fly like flies. I said, is that what you guys did? They said, Logan, have you ever made an arrow by hand? Sunk in. When a Sioux brave let go of an arrow, he expected an ouch. They just didn't randomly shoot him over a wagon train. And let me tell you, when Satan lets go of one of his flaming arrows, what does he expect? An ouch. And I asked these Sioux Indians, I said, if the fort was under attack by a Sioux war party, what side of the walls would you want to be on? And guess what every Sioux Indian said? Inside. What side of the walls are you living on? If you're on the outside, Satan doesn't have to ask permission. And we're going to look Wednesday through Friday at the scriptures that teaches what puts men, women, and young people on the wrong side of the hedge where the enemy gets the advantage. The scripture says the enemy gets the advantage. We'll look at that when the other group joins us. But tonight, what side of the hedge are you on? Warren Wiersbe said something that was so beautiful. He said, when the flaming missiles of Satan are allowed to pass over God's hedge of protection, they're no longer the destructive missiles in the hand of Satan. They become the refining fire of God. Isn't that beautiful? So when I, when I know that as best as I know how I'm standing in the will of God, when those missiles come, what do I know? God is going to purify my life. And I can do as Job, what? Fall down and what? Not get my heart right. Worship because what? My heart is right. Is it possible to be in Christian ministry and your heart's not right with God? Absolutely. It's easy for our hearts not to be right, isn't it? 
Little things get in, things happen, it doesn't take very long. And our hearts aren't right. And we need a tune-up. God, we need a spiritual tune-up. We need our hearts right with you. We need to be back in the center of your, your sovereign protection. And I know that you will protect me. Now, let's go back to um, Luke. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, in verse 31 of chapter 22, and that's all background for what happened here. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. And then verse 32 said, But I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Now, what side of the hedge was Peter living on, inside or outside? Inside. How do you know? Because Satan had to ask for what? Permission. Was Peter perfect? No. But as best as he knew how, where was he standing? Right in the center of God's will. As far as he knew at that time. And Satan had to get permission. And it looks like Jesus said what? Have Adam. But he said, Peter, I'm praying for you. What's the Lord doing for us right now? He's interceding for us. What's the Holy Spirit doing right now? He's praying for us. And I trust you have prayer partners out there that are also what? Praying for you. Because when Jim Voss finally got his life squared away, if you know the story of Jim Voss, he was the, the gangster that Billy Graham led to Christ in the way back in his first meetings. He ran off. He, his folks both taught at Biola, and he ran off with the junior funds, left the school and ran off with, with the money. That's not too encouraging when your son you know, is at the Bible school you teach at and steals money and takes, takes off. But when he finally got his life squared away, interesting story of his life, his mom and dad said, Jim, never forget this, the devil loves a shining mark. Do you want to serve the Lord? Then expect yourself to become a target. Every lost person is in the hand of Satan. Is that right? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He hath redeemed out of the hand of what? Of the enemy. And where does he put them? In the hand of Christ. And if you think you can snatch people out of the hand of Satan and put them in the hand of Christ, and Satan's going to wring his hands. We need to wake up. He's seeking, want to look at the various ways that he's seeking to keep us defeated so that we won't be as effective as we could be for God. Go to verse 53 of Luke 22. And here they come out to arrest Christ. And Jesus said, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. There were two groups that wanted Jesus Christ dead. One was the religious group, and the other was demonic powers. They wanted him dead. Uh, we're running out of time, but we've got to finish one little section here, so we're going to run real quick. If you go to 1 Corinthians... I never understood this, and you may have never thought of this. Just grab a commentary and check me out. If I'm wrong on any issue, I do not want to teach anything that is not right when it comes to warfare. And a lot of these issues I try to check with professors, Greek professors, Hebrew professors, that I taught with if I can't get it from my own study. Because I went through the Bible and read every verse and marked them on warfare. And I've done it maybe, 
I don't know, maybe the New Testament 50, 20, 20 times, every single verse, and checked it out in the Greek, because I said this is not something that I felt comfortable with. And I didn't want to stand up and teach something unless I knew I was teaching something that was biblically accurate to the Greek, to the text, and to the context. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you have it, 6, I mean, pardon me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6, 7, and 8. Howbeit we speak the wisdom among you that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world, which are come to nothing. The princes of this world are demonic powers. Or you have one, the princess of this age. He's not talking about a king that's that's dying, another king coming, a Clinton, you know, and a Reagan and something like that. He's talking about the rulers of this age. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden things which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes or the demons of this world knew. Had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What was a hidden wisdom? Remember that as a previously concealed truth? Satan totally forgot what was said to Eve in the garden. And he said if he would have remembered what was going to happen when Jesus died on the cross, Satan would have pulled back his forces, whatever they had to do with the crucifixion, and they would have been no part of it. They'd have done everything to try to stop it. And what happened at the crucifixion? Three things. Colossians chapter 2. This ought to be in gold in everybody's Bible. What happened at the cross? 13, 14, and 15. Tremendous teaching. And you being dead in your sins... And the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What was the first issue dealt with at the cross of Christ? When Jesus died on the cross, he died for how many of my sins? How many of them? I mean, even my future ones. In fact, all my sins were future when he died for them. Jesus paid it all, didn't he? The sin question was dealt with once and for all. The second thing, he blot out the handwriting, the ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. All the ordinances were done with. But the third one is it. This is where the demons came in. And he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, and he triumphed over them in the cross. Three things that took place. The first thing the King James says is spoiled. If you have another uh, version of the scripture, you'll find it says disarmed. See, when a police officer takes someone, what's the first thing he does? He searches him and takes away his what? His weapons. Satan's weapons have been taken away from him. The only weapon Satan can use against you and me, you know what it is? A lie. Satan's power is in the lie. And when you believe a lie, it becomes true for you. Can you see that? When you believe a lie, it becomes true for you. And everybody that comes to see us that needs help is believing lies of the enemy. Anyone here feel inferior? Is that of God? Is that true? Let me tell you, that's got brimstone all over it. That's out of the pit of hell. That's a major lie of Satan. I know I'm in there. Someday I'll maybe have time to give you my testimony. I was the chief of the inferiors. I had a club and they elected me president because I was the worst. I mean, this was after I was in ministry. I had all kinds of fears of rejection. I'd be sick at funerals. You know why? 
in our dinky little town. When someone died, they related to everybody, and everybody comes to the funeral. So our church would be full of all these strangers. If I preach the gospel, the unsaved would be, they would be offended, right? If I preach, if I didn't preach the gospel, God would be offended. So I'd be over at the house sick to my stomach. They'd be playing, you know, just as I am again and again and again. I say, you gotta go over and do that funeral. I can't, I can't. Church is full of people. They're standing outside the little country church. I'm sick to my stomach because somebody is not gonna like what I'm gonna say. And I, my funeral services were marvelous. I had 50 funerals in that church and I had the same crowd. I'm writing a book. 50 famous funeral services from Jim Logan, all different, you know. Oh, I wrestled over those things. And after I would preach, I'd be so sick to my stomach, I'd say, move over, I want to lay down. <laughs> I just had it. Then I'd have to get in the thing and ride out to the cemetery. And you do the ashes to ashes and dust to dust, sick all over again. Because they had another little thing out there. It was, you ever live like that? It's horrible. I didn't realize I was being defeated by the enemy. It was awful. Scared to witness for fear that they reject it. You ever tried that? You, mean you, you ever try witnessing and you're afraid the person's going to say no? You think they're saying no to they're saying no to Jesus, but they're really saying no to me? And then I didn't say it right. Maybe I didn't hold my mouth right. Or I didn't lean forward. As the book said, I was supposed to on page 27, you lean forward at this point. You know, <clears throat> and I didn't do it right. All that stuff. I've been there. It's horrible. Thank God I'm not there anymore. But I lived there for a long time. I lived in bondage to the fear of rejection. Fear of failure. Thought I was dumb, couldn't do anything, could never do anything right. Tried to commit suicide when I was 15. So it said here that Jesus took away Satan's weapons. The only weapon he has left is the, is the lie, and his power is in the lie. And if I receive that lie, Satan will begin to exert his power over my life. You can count on it. And I begin to be influenced through that lie in my life and begin to believe that. The second thing that Jesus' death did is he put him on open display that he defeated them. He made a show of it openly that they were defeated and he triumphed over them in the cross. And in Bible days, when one army would conquer another army, they would strip the soldiers down to their underwear or to nothing. If you look on Bible pottery in any Bible dictionary, tied their hands behind their back and they paraded them through the town and said, you don't need to fear the Romans anymore. They've been defeated. Your allegiance is to the one on the horse. And Jesus has defeated the enemy and he's on the horse. And he's our victor, and we share in his victory. You know what I tell my counselees? I said, I hope you didn't come here to get victory. He said, what do you mean? I said, you know, you're not going to be able to get victory over Satan. I said, mean, I flew here all the way? To, and, I, and I said, why? I said, because you already have it. Now, I can't defeat Satan in your life. Why? He's already defeated. Are you standing in the victory that's yours in Christ? Isn't that right? Isn't that what it says? We have the victory. Are we standing in that victory? And are we walking in the victory that is ours? That's what God wants us to do. So what's the problem? Satan was totally defeated at the cross. He said his power is in the lie. What's the problem? we got to close. Because I want you to come back tomorrow. Um, Colossians chapter 1 has a warfare prayer. And we'll, I'm over time, so we're just going to take one little part of the prayer. Colossians, Ephesians has two warfare prayers. Colossians has one. And let's just jump in in verse 12. 
giving thanks unto the Father, which made us makers to be partakers of the saints in light. Whenever It's interesting, when God talks about us being saints in light, you can expect to see him talking about being in darkness, light and darkness. Look at the next verse. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated in the kingdom of his dear son. Beloved, you and I have been delivered from the power of darkness. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28, the Great Commission? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, what? Go. Why did he say that? If you don't understand warfare, that makes sense. Why would he say that? I mean, after all, at the throne of God, wouldn't he have authority? He's not talking about that heaven. Who's the prince of power of the air? Satan. The whole world lies in who? The wicked one. We are called ambassadors. That's a foreign representative. This, as beautiful as Alaska is, it belongs to Satan. This is his world. And Jesus said, I want you to know something. There is one who we're told in 1 Peter 5.8 is an adversary, and that means one who is opposing you. He said, I want you to know this. I've left you on the earth, and there's one who's going to exert tremendous power in opposing you, but I want you to know something. I have greater power. Therefore, go. Isn't that beautiful? Because if he didn't, there would be no going. And Satan wants us to go in our strength. And God wants us to go what? In the power of the Lord. In his mighty power. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you we could see that the enemy would like to put thoughts in our mind that aren't true. And that you want us to reject those thoughts and not receive them, and not let those thoughts become a part of our thinking, then they become a part of our actions. And Lord, that you defeated Satan perfectly, completely, totally, on the cross of Christ. And that you have greater power than the one who is opposing us. And Father, we need to just seek you. And Lord, what side of the hedge are we living on? Does the enemy have to get permission? Or Lord, am I on the wrong side of the protection? And he doesn't need permission. And he's bringing all kinds of destructive stuff in my life. So Father, we pray this week, as we work through, as we look at the hedge and what makes up the hedge, you tell us, do not give Satan an advantage in our life. And as we look at the topos issue, giving Satan the advantage, giving Satan ground. Lord, help us to see the victory that is ours, the freedom that is rightfully ours as a believer. And we know that Satan is seeking to work, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But we can stand against that. And you said, resist him, and he will go. So teach us this week how to stand in the finished work of Christ and resist him 
and see him go. Thank you, Father, for giving us victory in our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.